Welcome to the Kids Corner, where we explore sensory processing, development, and play with purpose as it pertains to eating, sleeping, playing, and growing. On this podcast, we will educate you on the lesser-known topics, give practical tips and tricks to help elevate your practice, and provide resources for families and caregivers. We are your hosts... I'm Bean, the co-founder of ReU and a recovering paraplegic. And I'm Nancy, a kinesiologist specializing in pediatrics, facilitating learning and development through movement and play therapies. This week, we are talking to two of our pediatric neuroexercise specialists, Brooklyn and Tegan, about distracting and entertaining kids during their sessions. Welcome, ladies. Hello. Hi. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, of course. Brooklyn, why don't we start with you? Why don't we have you just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you? Yeah, for sure. So my name is Brooklyn. I have been a neuroexercise specialist with Ryu since the summer of 2020. But before that, I went to the U of A for Bachelor of Kinesiology with a major in Adapted Physical Activity. During my degree, I became a practicum student with the Ryu. I was After that, I was hired on as a neuroexercise specialist. When I first started, I worked mostly with adults and assisting with kids doing distractions. And as I worked with kids, I started building up my exposure and my knowledge and my skills, uh, taking courses and being hands-on. And now I work with a few kids. All right, Tegan, and why don't we go to you? Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? So hi, everyone. I'm Tegan. My background is very similar to Brooklyn's. So I graduated from the University of Alberta this past June with a bachelor's degree in kinesiology and majored in adapted physical activity. I did my practicum at Ryu from September to December of 2020 and then was hired on the following March. And I've been working here ever since, so about eight months. And I started working with both adults and kids. Awesome. Well, we love having you guys as part of our team. And you guys both are really great with the kiddos. So why don't we just get into it? Why do we entertain or distract the kids during their sessions? We do this for a lot of reasons. It helps to take their attention off the tasks that we're acting. Um, asking them to do. It helps to keep them engaged during the session, to keep them from getting frustrated and potentially having a tantrum or a meltdown, and also to encourage them to do certain activities. Yeah, and I'd just like to add a little something. The brain still learns even if kids aren't cognitively thinking about the task, so we can have them being distracted and still learning at the same time, which is awesome. Yeah, those are some great uh, reasons why we distract and entertain. I'd like to just add in that um, distracting and entertaining is one of our greatest tools to get the kids to do what we want. We call it play with purpose. To do all the really hard activities and exercises that the kids don't necessarily want to do, but we make it fun so that they do end up wanting to do them. So it's a big tool of play, so to speak. Okay, then on that note, what would a distraction be? What would it look like? So I'll just jump in here real quick and just say that there is a difference between distracting and entertaining. I don't know if, Brooklyn, do you want to touch on this a little bit about the difference between the two? Sure, yeah, I can chat a little bit about it. So distracting is more pulling the attention, pulling the child's attention away from a really challenging task at hand versus entertaining 
is more like engaging with that child, kind of making that connection and keeping them excited and engaged with the therapist and the distractor throughout the entirety of the session, not just one task. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. Tegan, do you have anything else to add in about the difference between distracting and entertaining? Yes, I do. So entertaining is a little more active, whereas distracting is a little more passive for the child. So when you're entertaining, they're kind of like playing back with you rather than just passively like watching a screen or doing whatever. And I also wanted to add that entertaining is a better option than a passive distraction because neuroplasticity requires the active engagement of the child. And when they're engaged, that's when you can see a lot of the changes start to happen. Yeah, for sure. I totally agree with that. We all know neuroplasticity is um, at its height when there's all this active input going on. So like Brooklyn and Tegan both said that um, distracting is more passive, more, you don't have to have a high level of cognition to be distracted. Whereas for entertaining, there is that higher level of cognition that starts playing in. So it's even a game as simple as peekaboo. Peekaboo is entertainment. Most parents can relate to this, right? Cover your hands over your eyes and play peekaboo. It can also be as simple as you just close your eyes and then you open them. It's a change in the environment and they're responding to what's going on. Brooklyn, do you have any other examples of distracting versus entertaining having worked with kids? Yeah, for sure. So some of the common distractions that uh, I might use is a light wand or an iPad or a screen versus entertaining would be more like, oh, we're having a little bit of a dance party. We're going to do the hokey pokey. We're going to throw some scarves around. They're going to pull the scarf off of their face everything like that. Those are some examples of a little distraction versus more of an entertainment. All right, Tegan, we're going to head back to you about how important is distracting or entertaining to the success of the session. So having now worked with kids, how big of a difference does it make to the outcome of your session? I find having a good distraction makes a very big difference in the success of a session. I find it can change the tone of the session, so it can make it more upbeat and more fun. And it can also change or influence the quality of the reps that you're able to get in. So say a child is like crying the whole time, you might not be able to get good reps or maybe they're not standing tall enough. If you don't have any distractions, but say they're reaching for something, you have someone that's good at distracting them, they can stand tall and they can do the reps correctly and with the proper alignment. Mm -hmm. And on that note, you kind of touched on something that I guess we'll go into a little bit right now. So when you said they were reaching for something or not standing tall, so are there any distractions or entertainment that's counterproductive to your session? And how do you uh, navigate that? Yeah, I find that there can be some. So let's say the child's holding something in their hands or maybe looking down at a distraction that's at their feet. It could make them want to reach down and grab it or look down and cause their alignment to go a little bit out of whack. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like you have to be very strategic with your distractions and entertainment and pick and choose what you're going to do when? Yes, exactly. And how you can use the distractions to um, better influence the session and have a more successful session. Awesome. Thanks, Tegan. Brooklyn, we're going to head to you about the different types of distractions and entertainment. Do you want to dive into that for us? For sure. And lucky for our kids, we have lots of different types. 
So the first one I'll talk about is uh, a visual distraction. So this can be kind of an object, so lights, toys, bubbles. Visual distractions or entertainment can also be movements. That's where we talked about dancing, that hide and seek, even running around and having the child seeing your movement and being like, hey, what's that guy over there doing is a great, great distraction as well. Uh, we also have auditory distractions. So some kids really enjoy singing. We know lots of nursery rhymes. Auditory can also be something like praise, like you're doing so well, stand up tall. And it can also be funny or interesting noises. I sometimes feel like a little bit of a beatboxer with all the clicks and clacks we make with our mouths. And other things we also do for a distraction is a taste. So snacks. This can also be putting weird textures into their mouths. Now that's another good distraction. And one of the last ones I'll talk about is physical or tactile distractions. So those can also be more of rewards for doing a really hard rep or a hard exercise. And that can be something like cuddles, high fives, jumping, dancing. So yeah, lots of different types of distractions and we won't use all of them for every child, but we do certainly use all of them at Ryu. Yeah, for sure. Tegan, did you have any to add in there? that you've used with kids? Yeah, I do. So I also wanted to mention vestibular. So doing spins or going upside down. I know some kids really love to do that. And even more interoceptive types of games, like make-believe games where you have to create like a game. So we have to walk the ball across the bridge to get it to the other side, to get it to the hedgehog or just anything like that. I find that those can be very useful as well. Yeah, and one thing we don't use so much at Ryu, but I know a lot of other pediatric centers do as well, is essential oils. So that's the olfactory, so that's your sense of smell. It can really help put your child in the best mindset for learning and that kind of thing. I'm sure that's something we'll explore down the road, but I know that is used at a lot of other places. So that's just one sense that we'll talk about. And you can see all these distractions are related to all of the different senses. So we're going to go a little further into... How do you know when to switch up distractions or entertainment? So having worked with kids for a few months now for Tegan and about a year for Brooklyn, what are your thoughts on switching up distractions? We'll go Brooklyn first. That's a great question. It was, for me at least, a little bit of a challenging skill to learn, and that's really what it is. It's a skill in learning to read a child. So I switch up the distraction when they maybe start to disengage from the entertainment that we're doing. If I'm playing peekaboo and they only play peekaboo five times, and they say, you know, I'm done with peekaboo. Then we'll move into a different distraction when they start to disengage. They also may start crying, have a change in facial expression or lack of expression when they were previously smiling. Or when their attention has returned to the hard stuff, they may need a change in that entertainment. Yeah, no, exactly. Tegan, do you have any other thoughts on that as well? Yeah, I also change up a distraction when it's no longer motivating the child anymore. So say they were motivated by having snacks after each rep and that's not really getting them to do the activity anymore just changing it up from there and maybe they want 
a spin after each rep, or maybe they want a song while they're doing the exercise. So something along those lines. Yeah, and for me too, having worked with quite a few nonverbal kids as well, they're not necessarily going to tell you verbally that they're done with the distraction, but they're going to be a lot of different physical signs, different postures, different little micro expressions that they're going to give you to tell you, hey, I've had enough, change it up. And that goes with even the activities, right? So let's say you're doing a hard exercise or repetition, and they're just, you know, throwing in the towel, but you miss read that. And when you misread it, then you get into meltdown tantrum mode. So it's really important to get to know your child, bond with the child and work with them from where they're at as well. And part of it is you're going to push too hard sometimes and push them over the edge and you're going to miss that switch in distraction. So that switch in distraction or entertainment really does help you avoid meltdowns as well. So I want to reinforce that, that we use the distractions and entertainment to keep them engaged for as long as I can and get the most out of the session to avoid the meltdowns and the, you know, lapse in learning for that period of time. Because we know when you're having a meltdown, learning really isn't happening, right? It's you're too overwhelmed and you're not going to be processing what's going on. So we're trying to avoid the meltdowns and the distractions are one of our key things that we use to avoid that. If you guys have anything else to add about that... I know it's a hard thing to learn to read the kids to know when to distract, but do you guys have any tells for when the kids are going to flip the switch? Brooklyn? Yeah, just to go off kind of, you were mentioning those physical signs that you see. One that I see with one of my kiddos is it's more, if especially if I'm handling, I can feel them start to sit and they start thinking about it and then if you change the distraction right away that's when we'll see that push to stand up again so yeah those physical things that we see with the kids feeling them change their movements or they may try and jump and run away that's another one that I see is the I'm gonna bail is another one I see when I feel them weight shifting away that's another one we're like oh we got to change it up get a different toy. Yeah. And Tegan, do you have any personal experience with changing up distractions and knowing when to change it up for any specific kid you worked with? Yeah. Well, like Brooklyn said, a lot of it is body language. I've noticed the same thing. And one tell that I've kind of noticed too, is they'll start turning around to look back at you. They won't like stay facing forward and they won't keep doing what they're doing. But yeah, that's how I feel like when I know it's time to switch it up. Or if they start crying, I feel like that's an obvious one. They start crying or you can see they're about to start crying. They stick their bottom lip out and it starts quivering a little bit. That's how you know it's time to switch it up. On that note, so as kids become more cognitive, they start wrapping you around their little pinkies. So how do you know when it's truly they need a new distraction, it's too hard, or they're starting to play you? And I say that in air quotations. Brooklyn, do you want to jump in on that one? Yeah, that's a great thing to differentiate there because kids are very smart. And so wrapping around the finger, how I can differentiate between, okay, I'm getting kind of tired. I'm going to maybe play it up a little bit versus this is actually really hard. There's kind of this like fake cry where it's kind of like almost like a huff. I also have a little guy who... (laughs) doesn't cry but pretends that he's crying and will 
pretend to wipe tears from his eyes when in reality he just needs something else. We maybe need to change the exercise or get a different toy for him to interact versus, hey, this is actually really difficult and I'm nearing the point where this is going to be much too hard for me. There's that different cry. There's a little bit of desperation in the vocal noises that they're making. That's kind of how I have found the easiest way for me to distinguish between I'm playing you versus this is a little bit more legitimate. Tegan, do you have anything to add to that and just from your personal experience? Yeah, I definitely have been played by a few kids and just knowing if it's like a tantrum versus a meltdown. I found one thing that has been helpful for me is kind of like calling them out on it. So if you see that they're like starting to maybe wipe a fake tear or if the bottom lip is coming out, you can be like, oh, like that's fake. And then they immediately stop. So that's how you know it's fake and not actually, they're not nearing a meltdown or anything. Whereas I find a meltdown You can even see in their face, their face gets a little more red. And yeah, you can just see it's more of a panic and they're getting a little more overwhelmed than just faking it and trying to get out of something. Yeah, I mean, for me, I think it's how they respond to me. So if I'm, you know, telling them what's going on, so I'll talk them through what's going on and usually they'll settle down. If they don't settle down, then I know it's too hard as well. Just from my perspective, I like to just engage with kids, talk them through it and just explain what's going on. And nine times out of 10, they're going to be like, okay, it's not that bad. But yeah, kids are smart. Like Brooklyn said, they learn real quick who and what they can get away with. So on that note, I guess, do we want to talk a little bit about why do we try so hard to entertain kids during sessions? Tegan, can we come back to you for that? Yeah, so I think this kind of goes back to everything we've been saying. So to keep them engaged during the session, to have uh, a successful session, to keep them motivated. It also creates a positive environment that's conducive to learning and neuroplasticity, but it also ensures that the child has fun during the session. You don't want them to just associate coming to Ryu or going to therapy with doing hard stuff or crying or like unpleasant emotions. So I think keeping it fun and keeping them entertained is a good way to like make them happy and want them to come back. Like Nancy said earlier, it's like play with purpose. 100% agree with that. Brooklyn, do you have anything else to add to that? Yeah, I think Tegan said it pretty well that whole positive environment a happier child learns better than an upset one this idea of we want to be friends with the kids I've heard it's said in Ryu many times hey can we be friends again after something a little challenging and having that bond with the kids we do try so hard to keep those kids entertained because the better they're entertained the more they work the more active they are involved in their learning process and the more invested they are also in the exercises that we're doing with them yeah and i just want to add that the better the entertainment and distraction the harder we can push your child and the more gains we're going to make because we can push harder right and when i say push harder we can do trickier exercises or exercises that are going to help the brain grow more. So I know a lot of parents at this point have been exposed to dynamic movement intervention therapy. It was founded in 
2021 over the pandemic. And it's really been a game changer for a lot of gross motor milestones for a lot of kids. That being said, it is one of the trickier therapies and it pushes the kids so far outside of their comfort zone and from what they're used to and it helps their brain grow so much. But that therapy we find, if you have a great entertainment, you get so much more benefit out of it as well. And we've seen some really big leaps and gains. So I think that's also why entertainment is so important because we can do so much more within the context of a really good entertainment session. I just want to add in here too, that it's really, that helps build that bond too. And that trust between the neuro exercise specialist and the kid, because if there's no trust there, then they're not going to be willing to let you push them even further. And so I think that's something that you guys do really well is to build that trust, not only with the kid, but with the parents as well and show them that they're safe. They're in a place where their feelings will be taken into consideration and that we will do what we can to recover as much as we can. So I just wanted to throw that in there because you guys are doing a really good job with that. Thanks, Bean. And now we'll go to Brooklyn and Tegan. When do we not worry about distracting? I know this is kind of a foreign concept where the whole podcast is about distracting and entertaining, but when do we just not worry about it? Tegan, do you want to start with that? Yeah, I feel like this doesn't happen quite as often, but I've noticed a few sessions where the child is self-entertaining. So for example, they're playing with a toy by themselves or they're looking at their hands or you can tell they're just off in their own little world, but they're like content and they're still doing what you're asking. I feel like then you don't need to try as hard to entertain them. But yeah, like I said, I find that this doesn't happen as often, but yeah, can happen. Yeah, just to build off of that, what I will say is this was something I learned was happy kids don't need to be distracted. Don't tire yourself out doing crazy things for kids who are perfectly fine working with you that day. And that we don't want to tire out our volunteers. We don't want to tire out our distractors or ourselves as trainers. And those happy kids, we can do challenging things with them and then pull out the big guns, the big distractors when they really need it. 100% agree. And that's something that I try and instill in all of our trainers that work with pediatrics. If you have seven kids in a day, you need to be as high energy for the last one as you were for the first one. So when you get those lulls in the day where the kid's just happy, let them be happy. And you can reboot yourself at that point in time. It can be exhausting trying to be high energy all day, especially if that's not your personality. But at the same time, you still need to be high energy. So save your energy when you can. Which brings us to Brooklyn. We're going to talk a little bit about why do kids cry and what kind of crying is okay? Yeah, this is a great question. There's a a few different reasons why kids cry. Things can be like we are doing therapy. We are doing hard exercises. So something could be new and novel and scary. And just the fact that it's something they haven't done before even if it's not super challenging for them physically, could be a reason why they would get a little bit emotional. That being said, the exercise could be really difficult. It could be something they have done before, but we maybe lowered our support. So it's like, hey, this isn't as easy as I remember. So that could be another reason why. There's also a tantrum cry, which is different than uh, a meltdown cry. So Uh, A tantrum cry is, I don't want to do this. I'm 
just going to throw my hands in the air. I'm going to sit down and I'm just going to pout versus a meltdown cry where we've overwhelmed the body, we've overwhelmed the brain, and we just can't handle anything more. So those are uh, a couple different cries that we see throughout our sessions. Yeah, Tegan, do you have any kind of other cries to add to that? I guess I would just add that like them being tired could cause them to cry, but I would categorize that into more of a tantrum one as they just don't want to do it. I find with tantrums as well, kids have some control over their behaviors and actions, and then they'll immediately stop crying once they get what they want or if they give up. Whereas meltdowns, it's more of a full body reaction. They can't control what they're doing. And even if you stop the exercise or the activity, they'll continue to cry until their system has regulated itself. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna add a few other types of cries in there. So kids are kids. So there's the basic necessities, right? So they could be hungry, they could be thirsty, uh, they might need a diaper change. So these are all my like quick checklists of how are they doing right now? Because there are physiological reasons why kids are going to cry. And if you can check those off the list, um, then you can move on to the other ones that Brooklyn and Tegan have already talked about, about reasons why kids cry. But that's kind of the check down the list. And sometimes it is they just need a snack right? Sometimes it is they just need water. So we always encourage parents to come prepared with different things for the kids. Sometimes they want a different toy. Sometimes they want a hug from mom and mom and dad or a cheering squad or something else, right? So the cry means different things at different points in time and trying to read that situation that's constantly evolving as you go through the session, especially since you might start with hard stuff, go to easy, go back to hard, go to easy, or however the ebbs and flows of easy hard looks like, you're going to have different needs throughout the session and different cries you know, it's okay if kids cry. I think that's another thing that's important to note, but we just try to educate the parents on why the child's crying at this point in time. There's a rare occasion you get pain cries. Let's say a suit is on a little bit too tight or the AFO is digging in and you didn't know that. So that that cry is also a bit different. And that's one where you'll, you'll hear the difference. The parents are usually the first to pick up on it and recognize it as well. We'll stop everything. We'll figure out what's hurting and then come back to, you know, usually a more low key exercise after a snuggle with mom or dad or caregiver, respite worker, whoever's there, and then kind of get back into it. But it's important to note that just because they cry doesn't mean we have to stop. We're going to try and, you know, work our way around that cry and try and navigate that. Because like Brooklyn and Tegan both mentioned that we want them to be in a positive environment to get the most out of learning and out of this therapy and sessions that we're doing. Lots of different types of cries. It's definitely a harder one to learn about and to start to hear. I don't know if Tegan and Brooklyn, you want to talk about that, how you learned about the different cries when they were happening with your kids? Sure, yeah. Uh, I can chat about it a little bit. Learning these different cries for me was definitely through experience. I made mistakes and mistook a this is uncomfortable for me cry with a this is too difficult for me cry. So learning on the fly and also being able to have those eyes in front of you or even a mirror because you're usually behind the child. So you have both that auditory that you're registering and also their facial expressions and how they're reacting and pairing those two together and each child does sound a little bit different so as you're getting to know them having those two different types of information so that you can log it in your brain for future sessions definitely and tegan any thoughts on that 
for any of the kids you've worked with? Yeah, I've definitely noticed the difference of like a pain cry versus a this is too hard cry. Like Brooklyn said, I think it all just comes with experience and knowing the child. But for pain, I've noticed it's more of like a scream cry. Like you can tell something is wrong versus that this is uncomfortable or I don't want to do this. More of like a whiny cry, if that makes sense. Definitely does. So we've covered a lot in distracting and entertaining. I think it's important for other pediatric specialists to know just how important and useful distracting and entertaining can be when you're trying to push a child to the next level. I know there's types of therapy that can get watered down because you want the child to be happy every single minute of every single session, but that's not always realistic. So you have to have a healthy balance between pushing and happy and joy. And one thing I think that comes with time is as you develop that bond, you can push harder and harder, right? You might start with a little bit easier stuff in the beginning with a few spurts of hard, but you can definitely work into a few sessions down the road, more hard, more hard. It's cool to see the transition because as you bond with the child, you understand them, right? Because in the beginning, you're trying to figure out what distractions are working and you're trying to see how are they going to respond to what you're doing, right? So in the beginning, just educating parents, I find, is one of the biggest things that we have in our corner to helping the child progress. So on that note, Tegan, do you want to talk about any advice you'd give parents? Yeah, I'd want to say, like you said, Nancy, it's okay to let the child cry. We try to listen for the differences in cries and kind of knowing when to push and when to pull back a little bit. So yeah, so for parents, it's okay to let your child cry for distractions as a whole. If you know that your child likes a certain book or a certain anything, bring it because we will gladly accept any type of distraction that will help to keep the child engaged in the session. And yeah, snacks are always a big one I find for kids. A lot of kids will work for snacks and just, yeah, they have anything that is helpful, bring it in. We're always open to using it in our sessions. Brooklyn, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, just quickly, like Tegan said, we do want to collaborate with you as their parent. You do know their favorites. And I also know how challenging it must be to see your child cry in a session. We are happy to educate and discuss and please ask us questions if you are worried or nervous about the type of cry. And when we're saying, oh, hey, that's not a real cry, that will help you also build your confidence in us to understand your child. Yeah, I know exactly. And I mean, we still respect you as parents as the expert on your child. So to take a step back, we realize it is a privilege that you've given us to be in charge of your child for that hour. And we respect that. So open communication and dialogue like Brooklyn and Tegan both said, right? Like if you have thoughts and suggestions, we're more than open to them, right? Oftentimes in the assessment, we'll ask you what motivates your child, what's their favorite toy and that kind of thing, right? We're on this journey together. And I think that's something to be reinforced that we're all in this for the best outcome for your child here at Ryu, especially. So on that note, we're going to flip sides a little bit. We're going to go back to Brooklyn. What do you feel are the most important qualities in being a good distractor entertainer? So what do you like seeing in your helpers? This is a great question. What I like to see in my distractors is 
energy. So energy is different than enthusiasm. That's kind of what I've found. And energy also doesn't mean that you're being loud just to be loud. So a good uh, distractor or entertainer can match the energy level of the child and can read that, oh, there we need something a little bit louder, we need something a little bit more exciting, or okay, we've been too loud, we need to bring it down a little bit. Let's have more of a low-key distraction. And an entertainer is one that you can communicate well with. It might not even be verbally, and that's something that I've found to be interesting, because as the exercise specialist, you're often talking to the child. So you might need someone who can also read the child's facial expression and your facial expression as the trainer. Just give them a quick shot of the eyes and they know to, oh, bring that distraction up a little bit higher. Definitely. And Tegan, we'll head to you. What are your thoughts on what makes a good distractor helper in your sessions? Uh, Yeah, very similar to Brooklyn. High energy is always welcome and encouraged in the session and being able to kind of read when it's too, the session is too hyped or if the energy is too low. I also think it's important to recognize when the distraction is no longer working. So if my helper volunteer can see that the child's kind of not really paying attention to the distraction or they're not standing up tall, they can switch it up quickly on the spot. And also I find it's nice that if my distractor isn't afraid to be silly or get creative or be loud with their distractions, because that's ultimately um, what's going to keep the child's attention. So I just want to say, Tegan, that's a great point. Someone who can be silly and be goofy and connect with their inner child. Those distractors are the ones that I find the kids are the most affected by. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I think too, to be adaptable, right? If you have somebody who can go with the flow, doesn't get too riled up or get rattled too easily. As we know, most sessions, they take a few twisty turns and curves here and there. So being okay with just going with the flow of whatever the trainer is asking and, you know, switching it up because not all kids have a good day every time, right? We know bad days happen. We know that, you know, some days are more tired than others. So being okay to either lower the energy, like they were saying, or raise the energy, right? Matching what the trainer is doing as well also helps. All right. And then the last couple questions here. So we'll start with Tegan here. What do you want those helping in your sessions to know? So from any distractors, volunteers, students, what do you want them to know when you're working with kids? Similar to what we said, be goofy, be creative. One thing that I feel like I've noticed is I feel like if I have a student or a volunteer, they almost wait for me to tell them to switch things up. But I would just like them to know if if you're working with me, if you notice that the distraction isn't working, just like change it up yourself. Like you don't have to wait for me to say something. So yeah, just kind of like taking the reins there a little bit because I find sometimes if I'm really focused on doing DMI or whatever therapy we're doing that I might not notice that the distraction isn't working immediately. Yeah. And Brooklyn, anything else to add there? Yeah. So one thing I will say is for anyone who is helping out in in the sessions, kids are very perceptive. They can feel your energy. If you're nervous or you start to panic, if a child starts crying, that's going to feed into them and they're going to feel that energy. 
if you are that reassuring, goofy, constant, kind of more, like I said, reassuring presence, they'll feel that too. So be that friend, be that goofy person they can interact and engage with during our sessions. Yeah, and from my perspective, don't take anything that we critique against you personally. It's the session is for the benefit of the child. It's not for your benefit. So you'll almost be learning at the same time as the child for a lot of the different things we do. Just take it in stride. Try not to get too rattled by it. And like Brooklyn said, your energy really does matter. So even to tell your, your trainer specialist beforehand, hey, I'm having a rough day, we might just move you off of kids because it's almost better not to have a distractor at that point than to have a distractor that's in a bad mood or in an anxious place because that just feeds into the kids and makes our job actually a little bit harder at that point in time because now the child is turning into that anxious, especially those that are nonverbal. They're very, very perceptive with energies. So, you know, I like to say it was like, did I have a bad day if all the kids are in a grumpy mood or it was it all of those kids? Because I mean, the common denominator is going to be me, right? So that's something specialist that we have to be cognizant of is our own energy and our own mood. So if you need to do something to get yourself in the mindset for kids that day, do what you need to do. For some people it might be, you know, get into the zone of a kid, go watch a cartoon, right? Or, you know, listen to really upbeat music. But getting yourself in a space where you can carry the energy for everybody is also really important as a specialist. Yeah, I was just going to say that really ties into self-awareness and personal development, being aware of your feelings and your emotions. Because you're right, Nancy, the kids really do pick up on it and it really does affect the sessions that they have. And I think that goes for neurotypical kids too, right? Like babies pick up on emotions. And so making sure that you're in that high energy mode, even you know if you're not really feeling it that day, because we all have bad days as well as as adults, but being able to be aware of that and then using your coping mechanisms and the tools that you have in order to pump yourself up. So for some people, it's listening to a really upbeat song or Nancy, like you said, watching a cartoon or dancing or something to get your energy levels back up, I think is really important. And I am very proud to see that in all of our neuroexercise specialists. Yeah, well, let's wrap up and we'll go to Brooklyn first. Any advice do you have for anybody thinking about becoming a pediatric specialist? Yeah, for sure. The first one I would say is be open to learning on the fly. Pediatrics is a huge learning curve, especially when you first start. And you know what? It doesn't end there because it's almost a new learning curve every time you work with a new kid. So you're always going to learn something new. Every kid's going to teach you something different. And the next thing I would say is know your own limits. So emotional kids can make adults emotional too. And learning how to regulate yourself to be that strong, reliable presence and recognizing when, you know, today it's going to be a tough day for me and learning what you can do to increase your energy like we talked about a little bit earlier. And overall, learning to be comfortable with uh, your own discomfort and learning to roll with the punches and uh, learn on the fly. And Tegan, what are your thoughts on that? 
I definitely second learning on the fly. Like Brooklyn said, every child will teach you something new. You can even learn something new from every session, what you could do better with, what you can improve on, and what you did great with, and what you can carry forward into your next sessions. Also want to say have fun. Kids are very fun, and they are very high energy, so I feel like it's a great area to be able to have fun. It's very rewarding, and be prepared to do a lot of singing and distracting. I find those are very helpful. Yeah, singing is something that happens a lot at Ryu, and I often find myself driving home singing nursery rhymes to myself. So thank you, ladies, for that. And a bunch of other people say the same thing, too. But it is a great distraction. I really wanted to thank both you, Tegan and Brooklyn, for joining us today and for sharing your experiences and knowledge with us and our listeners. Pediatrics is a special area that isn't really made for everybody. It takes a special person to work with kids. And you three are definitely special people. (laughs) And so thank you again for joining us. Is there anything else you guys would like to add that you haven't already said? I'd just like to say uh, thank you, Bean and Nancy, for having us today. It was great to chat with you guys. Yes, thank you for having us. It was good to have this discussion and have everything to know about distractions and entertaining kind of all in one place. Awesome. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. As always, we would greatly appreciate if you could subscribe, leave us a five-star review, and a comment on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as this helps us increase our reach. And stay tuned for another episode coming at you in two weeks.